The following podcast contains explicit language. The Matrix Reloaded is like better than it than if you go back to it, it's better than it what you is remember. That the guy, those guys with the blonde dreadlocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was gonna say I just ran it back the other night. What is good, everyone? You're listening to the Post Bougie Podcast for the week of May 2nd, 2015. This is Gene Demby, the founder of Post Bougie, but most people call me GD. Um, I'm in my day job. I'm a correspondent for NPR News. Joining me are my Post Bougie play cousins, Taryn Hall. Taryn is a writer and a digital strategist who is now living in Richmond. Congratulations on your move. Thanks. I'm super excited about it. I ready? made a terrarium yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to do that in D.C.? No. Um, <laughs> and of course, another PBR, Jamel Bowie, who is a staff writer who covers politics at Slate. What's good, Jan? Howdy. Special <laughs> congratulations to Jamel, who just got engaged. Congrats. It's true. Aww. I just got engaged. Surprisingly. Surprisingly. I don't know why it's a surprise. Why is it a surprise? <laughs> I just, it seemed like the right thing to say. <laughs> Y'all been dating for a minute. It's, it's, you know, it's not really surprising. Yeah, yeah, for a while. Spoiler alert, we get married. It's like, oh, it's been five years. Um, <laughs> I'm just, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, that, that's how it was with my parents. They were like, "Oh, congrats!" And it's like you know, we've been dating for like half a decade. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Jamil Smith, a former producer for MSNBC's Melissa Harris Perry Show, um, and now the senior editor at the New Republic. What's good, Jamil? What's up? Thanks for being here with us. My pleasure. We wanted to have Jamil on today because he had a pretty unique uh, perspective to one of the conversations that ate up Black Twitter. Uh, all Twitter. Black blogosphere and all Twitter, I guess, uh, over the last couple of days. Jamil Smith was the editor of the Michael Eric Dyson piece uh, in which he laid in, went all the way in on Oof. Cornell West. Um, Cornell West and Michael Eric Dyson are obviously two of the most prominent public intellectuals in America. Um, and they also have a long personal history with each other. So, Jamil, we wanted to, to talk to you about that piece, how it came to be, but also the fallout from that piece. Where, how did that happen? Did he come to y'all? Did you come to him? Like, what happened there? Well, uh, just, uh, you know, basically he came in uh, to me, I'd say maybe a couple days after he'd appeared on Melissa's show, uh, found out that I had moved on and, um, you know, found out that I was at the New Republic. And when, when did he appear on Melissa's show? This was um, about mid-March. Okay. And so he called me a couple days later at the office and said, um, you know, I have, a, I have a long essay I've been working on for several months. And it's about Cornell West. And immediately, Ooh. immediately, I knew what, what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so he had so, that he had that in the chamber for months. Absolutely. Built up. Yeah. He had worked on this, uh, as I found out later, for almost a year. Whoa. Wow. Damn, Gina. Yeah. Okay. So he comes to you and says, I'm going to do that. I have this thing. 10,000 words. I have no idea how long it was, but when he first came to you with it. It was uh, longer. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and was there any sort of peg? Like, where, where, was, what, where was that coming from? Like, why did he decide, like, now was the time to do this? Well, pr- pretty, pretty, pretty succinctly, uh, he decided now was the time because it was done. Or uh, he felt like it was done and, it, enough so that he could bring it to a magazine to have it edited and presented. Um, so, basically, you know, he said, like, look, I want to work with you. I trust you uh, to handle this. And, uh, you know, I took one look at it, and so did uh, our editor-in-chief and uh, my uh, co-editor on the piece, Theodore Ross. And we all came to the con- obvious conclusion that this is something that we needed to, you know, not only uh, not, not only needs to be published, but also, like, should be published by the New Republic. And we should be in this debate. Okay, so... I'm riveted right now. I know. This is crazy, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so this piece runs. Did you have any sense that it was going to be this big? 
Yes, immediately. My, see, let me give you a little bit of context. My, my mother's an academic. Mm-hmm. And so I not only knew about sort of, you know, all this stuff, you know, these, these, these kinds of criticisms of Cornell West surrounding him well before I worked for Melissa. But obviously, when I began working for Melissa about, three, you know, three and a half years ago, I mm-hmm. uh, became intimately in, in acquainted with this beef. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I, I decided that, you know, it, it, it wasn't so much about like, OK, oh, I really like Melissa and this is something that I feel like, you know, we need to, you know, be in this and like, boy, I can't wait for see the reaction. No, I thought like this is a legitimate, you know, this is a legitimate uh, comeback, I guess you could say, um, a legitimate response to the vitriol that had been spewing forth from from Professor West. And I thought that like, you know, this was this was a unique and really interesting opportunity to see that uh, that debate continue. I mean, honestly, I, I'm glad that he didn't do it in the form of a talk show soundbite. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad he didn't do it so in the form of a soundbite. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was not. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't do it in the form of a of a speech or what have you. I think it, it would have lessened the um, the importance of it. I think it would have trivialized it. I think doing it in the written form um, really, I think, ele- you know, I almost say elevated the, the debate, so to speak. But I think it really gave it a different tenor. Um, it shows how important Cornell West is. Mm-hmm. Because he's an important enough figure in American life and in American academia that it merits having 10,000 words to critique him. Um, it merits taking, you know, this kind of time and this kind of, um, you know, involvement and this kind of passion, to be frank, uh, to take a really good, close look at his legacy and lament where he's, uh, you know, at least in Michael's opinion, where he's gone off trail. And we should We should probably say that. <clears throat> Uh, you, when you say you're intimately equated with this beef, uh, Cornell West has licked shots at Melissa uh, quite a few times in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and so there are a whole bunch of very prominent black public intellectuals who run um, afoul of Cornell West in Cornell West's opinion. Yeah, and I, oh, Go ahead, Taryn. No, I, I mean, this is like a, a side, side, side statement. But one of the things that you mentioned, Jamil, was that the it being in written form elevated it. I think one of the best things about that is that people can really like dig in and annotate it in like pull out things that they want to i don't know it gives it just gives you more space to be able to like really chew on it than um you know like you said being on a talk show or um on on radio right right there's a lot of ambiguity um in speaking even the most precise speakers leave ambiguities there and i think writing can help get rid of some of those ambiguities and i'll say also you know I think it's worth saying for listeners, and, and, and Dyson goes into this in the piece, but uh, Cornell West really is sort of like a titan of American philosophy. Um, I studied Cornell West in college. Uh, his book, The American Evasion of Philosophy, it's a very sophisticated and fantastic work pulling together sort of related but somewhat disparate strains of American philosophical thought and put in kind of synthesizing them into a single uh, narrative. And that, you know, that... Cornel West, as a thinker, has been very influential on myself as a thinker. Mm-hmm. And so Dyson's core critique that that Cornel West has basically disappeared, any time is, is a good time for it. Because, right, right. Precisely because Cornel West is, is such a, a major figure in sort of uh, American academic life. But mm-hmm. and it's also funny, or it's also interesting to sort of consider Cornel West, there are a whole bunch of who don't know him at all as an academic, right? right? Who don't know him as a as a published author or a person who's doing this sort of rigorous intellectual uh, work, right? I mean, now, so many people know him as the dude from the Matrix movies. I mean, right. who had a cameo in the Matrix movie? That, that's in fact how I knew him until really? I got to college. And uh, one of my philosophy professors 
uh, assigned the American Invasion philosophy, and I looked on the cover, and I was like, "This is that, this is that that dude from the Matrix." <laughs> oh man, that's so funny. Yeah, and so I think a lot of people know him more as a pop culture figure, and also mm-hmm. as a you know outspoken uh, person. I mean, engaged in um, a broad array, broad constellation of lefty causes, mm-hmm. um, more than they know him as an academic, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of raises a bunch of interesting questions about. Um, black public intellectuals broadly. I mean, because, you know, a lot of people can make the same critique of Dyson, right? That he's a more prominent figure um, in public life than in the academy than he might, may have been maybe 15 years ago. Is that fair? Um, I, I think that that is, is, is fair to an extent. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, Michael has shown, at least in my, in my view, that he can do the public intellectual thing, be on TV, um, you know, occasionally host the cable news show, uh, do radio, do all these different appearances and still produce meaningful scholarship. Um, I think that, you know, the fact that he has continued to be productive and also says no to a lot of appearances in order so that he may take time to write. Uh, he has a book about Obama coming out soon, I guess, uh, next year that he's working on now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that he really still values, uh, as, as he makes plain in the essay, the the essence of what scholarship is and like this sort of traditional def- definition of scholarship, which is the writing. And I think the right. dif- the definition of writing, you know, it, it, for him, I think was really clearly and really, I, I think, I think artfully laid out in the essay. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, I think that his contrast with, you know, between writing and speaking and as far as, you know, the value of that kind of scholarship was really essential. And I think I haven't really heard too many uh, people in academia really giving voice to that. And the fact that it dealt with Cornell West specifically shouldn't, you know, exclude other people, I think, who are getting away with the same mistake. So can we back up a little bit since the beginning of the Obama administration, Cornel West has carved out the space as a really vociferous critic of the president um, that has earned him a lot of consternation from both people on the left and Obama supporters and among a lot of black folks who feel like, you know, some of his critiques have been ill-founded. A couple years ago, I should say, I interviewed Tavis Smiley uh, just in the run-up to 2012. And I actually thought some of the critiques that he and West laid out were pretty sound critiques like one of the things he was saying was that you know it would be rare it black folks would not broadly have an administration that would be as sympathetic to them as the obama administration was and it didn't do anyone any good to sit on the sidelines and not basically be all up in the obama administration's ass like all the time like hey we need more we need more we need more mm-hmm. um and i thought that was a pretty valid you know a pretty su- substantive critique like you know it's, it's, you can't just defend the president Part of the reason that presidents who moved on civil rights issues, um, who, who or, or moved, was because they were pushed for, by like A. Philip Randolph, um, uh, or they were pushed by you know Martin Luther King or whoever, right? But that's always been part of it. Presidents have always been pushed, and West definitely saw himself in that. Uh, West and, and Smiley, but West especially saw himself in this tradition. Um, they call it uh, what is it? Prophetic, prophetic, prophetic uh, tradition. Prophetic. They both see themselves in the prophetic tradition of sort of speaking truth to power and also having access to that power. Going back to like Douglas and and again A. Philip Randolph and Martin Luther King. No, I know I know Michael contends that he has never claimed that prophetic uh, mantle, and I, I think that in West's response to uh, ostensibly the dice, he did never mention Dyson by name in his Thursday Facebook post. Yeah. Um, yeah, I he think sub- it, he basically subtweeted at my yeah. Dyson. <laughs> These are two like of the leading lights of, of yeah. And they're subtweeting each other. I love it. None of he, us yeah. is immune. Yeah. <laughs> 
no one can escape the subtweet. <laughs> but I think with you know with West in his Facebook response, um, you know he 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 sort of dropped the uh, the the mantle of prophet. Uh, he he made it clear that he 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 does not claim that at least anymore. Okay, gotcha. Um, so to his credit, he has you know. He is he is he is he is, he is gotten rid of that title, or at least not laying claim to it anymore. That said, um, you know, I think it's it, I think one of the most intriguing parts of this essay mm-hmm. uh, for me as a reader and an editor was the uh, the definition, or as you know, of, of what a prophet is and what the prophetic tradition is mm-hmm. in Black culture. Um, I think that um, you know, for for Michael to really sit you know and lay all that out. Um, I mean, keep in mind, you know, I mean, I feel like I understood it because I, again, have an academic for a mother and I, uh, you know, have read Race Matters and I've read a lot of these books. But, you know, explaining that to, uh, a, you know, a, a reader who is not at all, never has never heard of this, you know, becomes my my charge. I need to make sure that this is clear to everybody. Sure. And I feel like, you know, inviting people to who, who are not familiar with what's going on, who are not familiar with um you know, with that with that sort of strand of, you know, of black activism and black academia. And, and I think we had a really op- good opportunity with this essay to introduce people to a concept that I think everybody should be talking about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing I, I kind of want to get in is the um, sort of the substance, the, the actual claims Dyson lays out. Because sure. I feel like in, in one of my frustrations with the conversation on Twitter over this essay it very quickly went from being a discussion of the the claims of the essay to a discussion of oh you know why why publish this in the new republic sure. you know why do we have uh two black intellectuals going out going going at each other in public when there are black people dying in the streets um which as a parenthetical uh there have always been black people dying <laughs> in the streets Absolutely. so that's and true there have always, always been black people, people thank you in public other, yeah. so i'm not thank really in sure forums that are not like necessarily or in forums that you wouldn't necessarily assume they would fight in so right and i i won't put the burden burden on you jamil to defend the new republic thing but i will um (laughs) as someone who totally agrees with the the critique of new republic's history as kind of a place uh that has been uh, at least for the last uh you know from like the 1970s to the very recent present a place that really had no um time or interest in black people um, the New Republic is one of the few places in American letters where you can just publish long essays of intellectuals and no one will blink an eye. Mm-hmm. And so even if we were dealing with the same old New Republic... You think it, it would fit there, too. I think it would fit. I think there are very few places that you could run an essay like that. Mm-hmm. There is on the right, um, and you wouldn't run this uh, at a conservative magazine, probably. No. Um, although the New Republic in, I think, the 90s ran sort of a takedown of black intellectuals. Um, yes. At a time when black intellectuals were actually sort of like the most vocal and like interesting intellectuals in public life. So mm-hmm. that was just obvious. That's an example of the New Republic being shitty um, <laughs> in its past. But, uh, you know, there's commentary on the right, maybe... On the left, there's dissent. There's, um, you know, maybe Commentary Harper's magazine and dissent magazine. Yeah, yeah. Not sorry, not sorry. Co- not not those ideas broadly. But uh, Commentary magazine, dissent magazine, yeah. uh, Harper's magazine. But there aren't there just aren't that many places where you could say without a news peg, 
or in, in places that wouldn't even ask for a news peg where you can say, I think this intellectual topic or this idea or this person is worthy of long exploration discussion. Can we publish this piece? Actually, my first thought when I saw this was published in the Republic, I was like, oh, of course it is. Like, where else would you where publish would this? Sl- Slate wouldn't publish something like this. You'd <laughs> right. be like, you'd be like, where's the news peg? <laughs> right. You know? yeah. is, that, is, is Cornell West dead? Is that what we should publish this? <laughs> As for the, the claims of the, of the essay, you know, I think, I really do think there's, a fair criticism to make that like uh, Cornel West has uh, fallen off in terms of his sort of scholarly contributions and that that is an important thing. Um, the bridge is over, so to speak. Uh, and uh, <laughs> taking it like academic diss yeah. Where's the funk flex bomb that we yeah, no, no. or the uh, or the uh, the siren? Yeah. Yeah, we need to get one of those. Absolutely. <laughs> I was about to say. Uh, and um, and that there is, I think, one of the things that Dyson goes into that I think is totally fair, and, and I've, I've yet to see anyone push back on this, is that it is odd for Cornel West to go so hard on Barack Obama, but not have gone hard in the same way on his Democratic predecessor, Bill Clinton, yep. who in all the ways that matter and were was worse than Obama. Like, you know, some of some of... Obama criticisms you can attribute just to the office of the presidency. Like mm. if you are the president of the world's uh, lone superpower, lone superpower, you are not going to be doing good things. Mm. That you're going, it's sort of degrees of bad here. Mm. Um, but even on that measure, Bill Clinton was worse in a lot of ways. And so yeah. why, why these these vehement criticisms for Obama, but not the same uh, vitriol for Bill Clinton? Right, um, he's actually embraced Bill Clinton. Right, he's embraced ways, Bill yeah. Clinton. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bill Clinton well, like, obviously is the architect of welfare reform, or at least the, the signatory of it, and and uh, uh, obviously our expansion of our drug wars, our policies, uh, mass incarceration. Absolutely. Like you can you can trace so many ills to the Clinton administration. Ills that mm-hmm. disproportionately affect black people and right. brown people. And, and I would add to that uh, with some of the things that Michael points out in the essay is that Clinton, you know, for West is only used as a derogatory uh, name when he is using that using his name to denigrate other black critics. I mean, calling, uh, calling Obama, you know, a brown faced Clinton calling Sharpton, the head house Negro on the Clinton plant, you know, plantation, you know, then all of a sudden Clinton is bad, but it's not as bad as the house Negro. You know what I mean? Right. It's not as bad as the Obama, you know, trying to imitate the <laughs> imitate Clinton, essentially, you know, that kind of stuff. That is you a know, really it, interesting contrast. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think that that, you know, I think that's something that, you know, Michael really helped bring to light in this essay was that, you know, like, wait a minute. OK, yeah, you're down with the Clintons when you when you when they're there and you're happy to be invited to the White House and engage on race and politics. But then when you need to diss Sharpton or you need to diss Obama, the Clinton becomes Clinton becomes a weapon. Right. And so that that to me, I felt was uh, one of the many distressing things about Professor West that came to light in this essay. Jamil, I wanted to know how you decided what things stayed in, because some of the, you know, some of the more what I saw on Twitter was like a lot of reactions to some of the more extreme, not extraneous, but like he was going in on Cornell West. For example, the piece about Cornell running after Anita Baker. Mm-hmm. As far oh, as the yeah. Anita Baker story that's in there, yes. I thought that that actually... Um, <laughs> It lent some, you know, perspective and some some color, uh, so to speak, to their friendship. I think it was really important to understand a how close they had been. Uh, that they were close, not just in terms of like, you know, this is an academic mentor sure. mentee relationship they were like or a- academic hero. Yeah, they went out together. Yeah. They hung out together, mm. and 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 Dyson was able to help him. 
you know, I mean, if, if you had told me, <laughs> I could understand. I'm like, we're all hanging out, and then there's a singer that one of us likes, and we get a chance to, you know, meet that person. And, yeah, I mean, somebody's going to be happy. And I think that it's a hu- very human emotion. I thought it actually humanized West. Right. And I don't think it made fun of West. I don't think it was something that was ridiculing. I think it was something like, hey, I remember this is a really good time I share with this dude. And, you know, he, 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 I, don't, I, I know I talked it out at length with, with Michael about that specific passage. And, you know, that's, that's just something that, you know, he was like, look, this is a way for me to tell you guys how much this guy meant to me and how, what our relationship was like at that point in time. Right. Um, I think that's a really strong basis. And I'm glad it's near the top of the essay because you need to understand, like, how close these guys were. Mm. Before, you know, really getting into later, as Michael does towards the end of the essay, the insults and the, and, and the stuff that West has fired at him uh, in the Obama era. One of the one of the critiques, though, of the essay was that that personal stuff only seemed to undergird the idea that Dyson is just angry. Right. Like this is boy and they just had a falling out. And so this is, you know, a personal beef wrapped in some substantive critiques of other things, but that's the vessel in which it's like more personal, like uh, anger is, is manifesting itself. What um, do you I, think about that critique? I think that, I think it's, it, you know, to some degree it's valid. I think that, you know, this is a story about two human beings hmm. at the end of the day. Uh, this is a story about how two view, human beings view each other um, and how two human beings are communicating with one another. And I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, bare bone it that uh, too much, but I think that like at the end of the day, this is a very human story it's it's a story about you know two guys who you know were once friends and politics and this you know the stage of celebrity have come in in a lot of ways have have helped to divide them uh you know probably uh irreversibly and i think that it's clear how much sorrow and sadness that michael feels at this but I feel like, again, you know, uh, I'll repeat that, you know, he feels that West is such an important figure and that his uh, his transgressions is particularly against him, against Melissa, against other people, um, you know, against the president himself are so dehumanizing and so over the top that he needed to be called out. And at the end of the day, that's what I feel like this is the best way for him to have done that. This whole discussion about Cornell West in particular, it, it's interesting now just because is he some like as a young person, as a black person, is he somebody that we actually really listen to like that anymore? No, they, I mean, there is a universe of people who, again, like who, for whom this argument, this whole tete-a-tete means absolutely nothing. Yeah. Right. One of the ironies of that is that those two dudes were part of um, sort of this larger push to make. Um, black intellectual thought really public, right? Yeah. Like, and mm-hmm. um, and so one of the ironies there is that they are off still, like they still sort of don't matter to a lot of people, right? right. They still matter to <laughs> no. I mean, they, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there's a, there's they they brought a whole like a they especially Dyson like they've brought sort of like a a, a certain kind of lens through which people can process popular culture and yada yada yada. Um, and uh, for a lot of people, it's just like all oh, these two old dudes who don't matter, right? right. I mean, and I, I think that's a separate conversation sort of about how much a lot of the important discourse about culture happens outside of the academy and how much the academy can't matter. You know what I mean? Um, But those dudes do matter in a way that a lot of people don't, but they don't matter to me. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't don't matter to my cousin. You know, know, academic, like I still read Randall Kennedy. Right. And and I love Randall Kennedy. Randall Kennedy like puts out 
well, like every every other year, yeah. a new book that's totally worth reading. Yeah, and, and even like, even when they infuriate me, or right. infuriate me, which is a lot. But yeah, like, Randall Kennedy challenges me, it makes me think. Yeah, absolutely, and I just you know, I don't know even that. I don't know how relevant it is to the broader to the broader convo. Even someone who like is unimpeachably like a productive academic mm-hmm. is in some ways like a bit disconnected from it all. Right. Absolutely. Even in, and, and even, you know, one of the, um, one of the critiques of Dyson and, uh, West I've read that I, I kind of agree with is that, um, you know, I made fun of earlier. There are black people are dying in the streets, but you know, a, that's true. And B, uh, <laughs> it's always true. It's always true. There, it, it's worth engaging. I mean, Academics should be engaging with that kind of thing. Sure, and sort of absolutely. like sociologists very much are, but like in sort of the world of academic philosophy and in the world of like academic law, it's like it's less. I see less engagement with with sort of the issues of police violence, issues of sort of like Black Americans' role in civil society. And so on this on this thing where West and uh, to a lesser but similar extent Dyson ought to be very engaged academically, they're kind of absent. And hmm. so it's like you know. I guess this beef is cool, but like, why don't we turn our productive energies to turning your very real intellectual gifts to these issues that are worth looking at from a different lens, and and particularly lens like Wes is who you know Wes has like this really incredible ability to synthesize a wide range of different kind of thought and and devote that lens on a single thing, and that I think in this moment where it feels it feels to me, at least, like a lot of dis- a lot of different disciplines are a bit exhausted in their approach. It's like a very valuable skill. That is sort of a, the the philosophical tradition that it, it pulls from. is called American pragmatism, mm-hmm. and like that's what we need right now. Right. And so, where is West? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there's well, no point to that. It's just sort of like my thoughts. No, no, no. That's <laughs> no, I actually think that speaks a lot to like sort of how we you know, make intellectuals into icons nowadays. It's, it's a whole different model from what it used to be. We used to make intellectuals into icons around where time race matters came along, you know, because of their written work, because of the things that, you know, the thoughts and ideas that they bring to the table. I think West has over the years, you know, gotten into a different model where he, you know, has, has become an icon to people through what he says on television, through what he, he, through what he says in a speech, through his appearances and his arrests. Um, mm-hmm. he has become a, I guess, a role model or, um, you know, prominent figure in a different way. And in, 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 in that, in so doing has changed the model for how we get to know, you know, public intellectuals. So I mean, you know, how many people, a lot of people knew who Melissa Harris Perry was. That's just where I was about to go with this. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously they can't escape that in, in this conversation. <laughs> sure. I mean, we, you know, when that, when that show began, um, you know, there are people who like who have probably no idea who Melissa Earp. Now she is, you know, a fundamental part of the of the not only the intellectual conversation in America, but the American conversation. Yeah, like a, the pop cultural conversation, right? Exactly. And, like, it matters exactly. that your people on the on that show. Um, and in the I mean, you know, Black Twitter is like you know on on Saturday and Sunday mornings. Um, they're you know, I mean, she takes over. Not like Shondaland level stuff, but I mean, you know, she's like definitely like, you but, know. But Nerdland level. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's a, she's a big deal in a way that, you know, I mean, it is it is actually remarkable. And to your point, West 
um, and Dyson to some extent like carved out this space. And I, I don't want to say like she's like you know she owes it to them or anything like that. But you know, no, I mean? by no means. I think she's done it in her own way. Absolutely, I think she's she has carved out a space you know in television. I think you know actually in pop culture that is probably you know supersedes yeah. um, what Cornell or Michael have done. So one of the pieces of this whole conversation, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, but was a criticism not just of where the piece was published, but this, but sort of a and you you wrote about this on Friday, um, mm-hmm. sort of a ra- you called it erasing kind of the um, the blackness of the people who edited the piece. There were there were some crit- there's one criticism from Gawker, um, in particular from a writer at Gawker uh, who. Jason dismissed Parham? is this Parham or Parham? Parham, yeah. Parham, okay. Uh, Jason Parham, who dismissed the whole piece as sort of being this, um, you know, typical New Republic white gaze, and uh, specifically referring uh, to you as sort of I forget the exact word, the the exact language, but sort of being like, oh, this time the New Republic just found, found a black guy to do its uh, its uh, dismissal of um, black people for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you wrote in response to that, and I thought your I thought your response was uh, very good and very interesting. If you wouldn't mind just chatting about it for a bit, of course. Um, yeah, specifically to give uh, proper context, um, I do feel like he maybe not was referring to me, but referring to Dyson um, when, when he when he wrote this. Uh, and I'll just read it uh, to give full context. He says, "If you are wondering why such an essay, though really essay is too nice, this is an attempt to." fully ether west legacy appears in the pages of the new new republic it is because the 100 year old magazine of things white people think all caps is doing what it had done many times throughout its storied past treating blackness as a thing to be picked apart only this time they had another black man do the bidding um unconsciously he is referring i guess to the 1995 whistletear uh, essay which was about 5500 words that that you know, this is an article by Leon Whistletear, who had been an editor there for a very long time until late last year. Um, Whistletear, in a very unfair and and, and terrible way, um, you know, tried to pick West apart in that essay. And I, it was uh, called The Decline of the Black Intellectual. I am unsure whether or not he was directly referring to that essay. I took that to be sort of a critique of any number of, of possible transgressions that the New Republic has. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily the Whistletear thing. But, I mean... The New Republic has a long, long, long history of doing shitty by black people. Yeah, and that's fair. And I think ta laid it out you know, very capably. I think Jeet here uh, in the first issue of the quote-unquote New New, New Republic, Republic yep. uh, thoroughly examined it and, and did so, in, I think, in a fair and, 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 and equitable fashion. Um, and that's not, that's not to say that we're ready to move past it by no means. Uh, as, you know, as I wrote on Friday, um, I think we need to continue to recognize – what this magazine's legacy has been mm-hmm. uh, so that we can make sure that like, you know, there's not another teenage black kid like me who walks into a public library and sees a cover that, you know, proclaims a white suburban teen uh, with headphones on to be the real face of rap. Uh, you know what right. I mean? Like that's what happened to me when I was 16 years old. That's mm-hmm. how that's at least from what I can recall the first time I really ever came in contact with this magazine and its ideas. So when I, you know, my, my job, I feel like, and the job of my other colleagues of color and also, frankly, my white colleagues are is to make sure that that magazine does not exist again. Um, and that's the main thing I wanted to make sure that uh, I expressed in response to Jason Parham that, you know, you can't you can't say that this is a white magazine anymore. Yeah, it's owned by a white person. 
But you cannot say as long as I'm here and as long as my other colleagues of color are here and as long as I'm editing the piece that you are critiquing that, you know, this is a white magazine. It's not. And not just with this essay, but with the stuff I'm writing, the stuff that we have other guest writers of color writing and other white writers writing. Um, We are engaging ideas that affect all people specifically black people. And we are, you know, making sure that people's voices are heard, people's, people's respectives are, are reflected. And, and frankly, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, another situation where, you know, in, in another 50 years, we're having to write about the, you know, all the continued transgressions of the new Republic. No, I want that stuff to become history. I want people to remember it, but I definitely want people to notice the change that is already starting to take place. So there are two things I want to get into from what you just said. Um, one, because um, both Jamal and I are, publi- are, are published at outlets that are overwhelmingly white. Uh, um, and <laughs> among... We're, we're you, you, old... you might say lily white. <laughs> <laughs> I should say that NPR is not as overwhelmingly white as a lot of places I've worked, but it is, is you know, it's it's a newsroom in America. And the mainstream America, a newsroom is super, it's pretty There's a white. strong whiteness there. I mean, there's, I, there are a lot of brown people, strictly brown women in this building, uh, but, and brown people in the NPR building, but it is a very white place. I, and I, I've worked mainly at liberal magazines and they're all pretty white. <laughs> um, and I, I sort of, I don't, I don't know if Jamel has anything to say about this idea of sort of like, um, sort of correcting for the whiteness of the place in which you, uh, which you ply your trade. Because um, I have uh, sort of complicated and un- unformed feelings about that, um, personally. But also, I think one of the things Jamel and I have talked about a few times um, is the sort of politics of calling somebody a sellout, the politics of uh, policing, who gets to be part of the group and who doesn't get to be part of the group. Um, I feel like Jason Parham was sort of doing this, like, you know, uh, sort of subtly, much more subtly in calling out Dyson, Um and saying that you know that you know he's the Dyson is sort of plying his trade on behalf of these white folks is sort of you know a dig at Dyson's authenticity, right? But I also mm-hmm. think um, that's sort of what Cornell West does all the time. Like I mean, what? it's like yeah. I mean when you call Hug somebody, people? no, I mean like he, you know, if you if you call uh, Sharpton, what do you call him? Um, well, I think you called a house Negro of the, Cl- uh, the Clinton plantation. Okay, so if you call somebody a house Negro of the Clinton plantation, you're doing a whole lot of yeah. There's a whole lot of obviously. This, I mean, that's that's fucked up. It, I mean, yeah. So <laughs> so it's fucked up, and um, the politics of that are always really fascinating to me, right? Because you know, to me, and I actually be- I, I've changed my opinions that peep there there is a such thing as selling out i used to think that like no everyone gets to be black and blackness is broad enough to ex- include all sorts of ideologies and whatever 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 and i think that's broadly true but i still think that everyone polices um and i and i, I and i think what's more interesting is the people who deign themselves the arbiters of or right. decide that they get to be the police and that's what right. west has done for a long time right and i think there's a distinction between you know selling out mm-hmm. and completely deracializing your opponents. Right. Um, you know, saying essentially that you are not black is different than saying you have sold out other blacks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that there's, there, I think that, you know, the deracializing is, 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 I'd say, you know, at least on a name calling level, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very, very disturbing. And I think it's a really disturbing trend that, you know, <laughs> frankly, we learned very early, as I think all of us have probably experienced. Sure. Um, and so what I, you know, what I hope to do with this essay uh, yesterday was simply explain to people, A, 
how this came to the New Republic because there were a lot of theories sure. <laughs> <laughs> about how this actually arrived uh, at our magazine. And also, you know, make it clear that, um, you know, that this change that we hope to have is not happening overnight, but we are working towards it. And lastly, that, uh, you know, if you're going to erase somebody, you know, at least uh, have the decency to pick up the phone and call them for comment first. Um, that would be nice. You know, he, he made, he made um, you know, suppositions about how the essay came to the New Republic and what our purpose was behind publishing it and never contacted us. So I think it was, uh, you know, normally, uh, you know, stuff is not worth responding to and that, you know, that's, 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 that's written in such a way. But I think that that provided an opportunity for us to make some important points. Right. Any more backstage mess you want to share? <laughs> this is well, what I really want to know. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, you know, I guess for other people who might later edit uh, Michael Eric Dyson, he is an extraordinarily cooperative writer. Mm. Um, and <laughs> that's, which, that's, that's, that's high praise. It is. Because <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, you know, a, for a guy with his schedule working on a book deadline, um, to take the time to really go through, uh, and I mean, tiny, tiny edits uh, with me. I mean, sometimes, I mean, we'd have 20-minute conversations about one sentence, mm-hmm. um, you know, either via text or on the phone. And I think that, you know, to be able to work with somebody who, who really cares about the craft uh, is, is a blessing as an editor. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I just could, I, what I hope is that the essay shows that this magazine is serious about interrogating black ideas and black arguments, even um, that, you know, maybe it, it wouldn't have you know been so open to in the past. My suspicion is for a lot of people, this is the first exposure they've had to the New Republic, too. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, obviously, in our spaces, people who like are in the media, like the New Republic is a known quantity and known entity. And I think it was when uh, Chris Hughes took over, um, the sort of mass exodus out of the New Republic was a thing that only, it was one of those things that only media folk care about. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right, like, right. Nobody gives a shit about this outside of, you know, media circles. Um, even though every, there was all this sort of like rending of garments and gnashing of teeth and stuff like that. Um, but it, it does seem like, it, like for a lot of people, their first experience with the New Republic will be this this i guess opening salvo in probably a longer longer conversation and i wonder like how many black people um so don't even come into this conversation with all that baggage about what the new republic had been for decades and decades and decades you know what i mean yeah no i mean i think it's i mean as tanahasi pointed out early in his um in his essay last december um you know one of the things that really became evident on twitter that day uh when you know folks you know mass exodus from the uh, the new republic happened was the the sort of um, monochromatic uh, nature of the uh, of the morning? <laughs> yeah, the the people who were complaining <laughs> were really really white. Like there was no, there were very few brown people. I think at one point, a few some people I know tried to actually tally the brown bylines that they could have seen that they might have appeared in the New Republic. So I'm one of the people that like am vaguely like, oh, the, like the New Republic, okay, right? Some vague knowledge of it. Like I knew that they had been racist or something before in the past. <laughs> Sorry, you can edit that out, Channing. If you need no. to. <laughs> Like, like there. So there was like some guy that had taken it over, and he was like an he Obama was, guy. Or he something. was a face. He was one of the early. Uh, he was like the number three at Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Of, yeah. Um. And okay. so he's a billionaire. And he's a young dude too. Chris yeah. Hughes. And they were. Chris Hughes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they weren't feeling him. And some of the old people were like, "I'm leaving." And then they were like all people that made like a lot of guap 
and it was just like okay. yeah it's, it's really it's, it's really easy for you to be like I'm leaving like, yeah but I mean it was like you know one of the things that uh, Tanahasi was saying was like you know this is the this is the kind of thing you leave because you know somebody said they're gonna buzzfeedify but uh, yo buzzfeed is cracking yeah buzzfeed, buzzfeed is, is mad brown and black and brown and mm-hmm. diverse they have everybody and over there and they're beefing up their long form and their yeah. new stuff is, they're yeah. coming for people's necks yeah I know I mean but it, but it speaks yeah. to sort of this generational thing right yeah. well not just generational thing it speaks to a big racial thing a big like, like social location thing because the folks who were you know actually since you're here we should talk about that a little bit okay like, did you have any reservations after the so okay there's this mass exodus of white folks Oh, it's, we could, it's fair to say it was a mass exodus of white folks, right? Yeah. I mean, okay. Is this? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't. I'm trying That's to make sure that it was actually no... factually accurate. <laughs> actual factual. You know, it's... actually and factually. Um, when they bounce, you are one of the you and Jeet here and some other people mm-hmm. go over there. Susie Kim. Yep. Oh mm-hmm. wow! I forgot. I, didn't, I forgot Susie was. Susie over Kim there. just jumped, came on board. Yep. Wow. Okay. Um. Did you have any reservations of joining the New Republic, like, given its history and given, um, and, you know, you and I talked about this election a little bit before, but, <laughs> before, before you went over there, but, um, like, what, what was, like, what was going through your mind? You're like, you know, I mean, obviously this dude has deep pockets, but like, what was, what was going through your mind about like what the New Republic, what, what could happen there and what might happen there and what has any, have you gotten any shit for being there? I was, before this article, had, had anyone sort of said anything sideways to you about it? Uh, not anybody whom I respect or know personally. Okay. Um, I'll put it that way. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I've gotten some sideways uh, looks on Twitter about it, um, but not, you know, most people were congratulatory. Um, in, the, in the process of considering uh, the possibility of joining them. I see, I mean, frankly, I saw it as, 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 as an opportunity to basically join a 100-year-old startup. <laughs> um, you, have a, you have a brand that is damaged, that was, you know, I guess you could say in need of repair on a number of fronts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought offered an extraordinary opportunity for me as a journalist to not only cover the topics that I feel passionate about, but also, uh, you know, work on special projects that... Uh, you know, frankly, you know, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to work on when I was at MSNBC. Mm-hmm. And uh, and while I adore Melissa and I think that, you know, that show is doing extraordinarily important work, um, I felt that it was time for me to move on into uh, a situation where I could write and edit at, the, at you know, in a full at a full time level. Mm-hmm. And so when I, you know, as, as you and I previously discussed, when I was considering going, um, you know, I, I didn't have any hesitation about the history of the, uh, you know, the, the history of the magazine is not going to make me stop, you know, it's not going to stop me from going there. Right, um, right. I mean, I went to, you know, an all, pretty much all white private school growing <laughs> up. I went to, you know what I mean? Like, I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? It's like, if I'm going to be against going to institutions that were, you know, have racist people in their past, I don't think I'm going to go to a university that was founded by Ben Franklin. Right. Okay. So <laughs> right. let's just, let's, you know what I mean? Like I can't really put myself in a, in a situation where I'm, I don't think pretty much any of us can put us yeah, in, no. our, ourselves in a situation where I'm going to only work for places that have the exact right racial politics, not only now, but also in their history. Mm. Um, the, we have to be, you know, part of that change. Um, and, and, and not just through the, uh, our mere presence, the, the mere headcount, but also through the attitudes that we bring into the newsroom, the, um, frankly, the stuff that we help them, that we help catch them on. <laughs> right, uh, right. You know, maybe it's not a good idea to publish that story. Absolutely. Maybe it's good, not a good idea to use that headline. Here's why. 
Um, Man, I wish I had that veto power at Slate. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where, like, uh, uh, so much of doing better is just not fucking up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, like, uh, not even, like, doing better all the time, but mm-hmm. just, like... Maintaining st- and not, like... And just not, like, the, the obvious fuck-ups. Like, though the obvious mistakes that you can just cut out, just stop doing those. You know what I mean? And, like, yeah. that's the... And I imagine at a publication, like... When Code Switch first started, um, we started tweeting. We tweet in like, the way we talk and the way we tweet all the time. We tweet from the Code Switch account. And people will be like, no, y'all don't get to do this. Like, you know what I mean? It was basically yep. like, I went, went my friend Franny Kelly uh, at um, Microphone Check, who uh-huh. was, uh, NPR's hip-hop podcast, everybody was coming for them because it's like, you have no credibility. And so if you're talking about this stuff, even though Franny knows her shit, right? Yeah. Even though it's like, it's her and Alicia Y. Muhammad and now Timotep, like, all those dudes, all those people are like, are like, steeped in this stuff. They are like, actually about the life is like yeah you don't yeah you don't get to do this right Right. um and people just call them out i mean you have to like establish that credibility yeah i think we're going to end it there so jamil thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here with us today it was a pleasure uh on behalf of jamil Bowie at slate and taryn hall the trap queen yes this is gd be easy Our theme music is Nick's Groove by the Foreign Exchange. And shout outs to our podcast producer, Channing Kennedy. Holler at us and sign up for our newsletter at postbougie.com. <laughs>